Good morning and Boker Tov. Welcome to our weekly Parsha Perspectives for today. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to welcome back all of our regular listeners. We meet every Tuesday morning at 9.30. And particularly, I want to welcome the mess- the uh, listeners who joined us thanks to the OU, deeply indebted to the OU for promoting and publicizing our class. We thank you for your leadership and your partnership and your friendship in so many different areas. We welcome all the listeners who found us Thanks to the OU. We hope you'll join us every uh, Tuesday morning. You can listen to old classes on RabbiEphraimGoldberg.org. And I would invite and encourage you to subscribe on YouTube if you're watching right now. And you'll be alerted about all of our shiurim and programs and classes and fantastic panel discussions. Our Parsha series this year is generally sponsored by our dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family. In memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Le'ilu Nishmas David Menachem Manish. And uh, we hope that our Torah learning and our timely perspectives from the Parsha will be Le'ilu Nishmaso and will elevate his beautiful and precious soul. We have the privilege this week of studying and reading Parsha's Korach. Parsha's Korach can be found in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash on page 820. And Parsha's Korach continues with the story of the book of Bamidbar. Bamidbar is the maturation, the development, the adolescence of the Jewish people. We went from the book of Bracious, the birth of the first family, to the book of Shemos, the birth of a nation, of a people, Vayikra, our special status, and the charge to the Kohanim to lead, to be an example, and then the book of Bamidbar, which is our adolescence, our coming onto our own, really at times an incorrigible people, a people that Moshe struggles to lead, a people so unappreciative, a people who are filled with complaints, not just that they complained, but they transformed themselves into a group of complainers, and in that they lost Moshe Rabbeinu, and they lost his loyalty. And that continues here in Parshas Korach. Part of the coming into themselves and understanding their different roles and where they fit is the story of Parshas Korach. And Korach, of course, the bulk of our Parsha captures the contentious debate, the rebellion of Korach, of those who he recruits to be his accomplices, and the members of the tribe of Ruvain, who are innocent, essentially, bystanders, who had the poor fortune of being assigned a camping assignment right next to Korach, which ended up exposing them and inviting them to be part of Korach's rebellion. And in fact, they suffer the worst casualties. They're not even among the tribe of Levi. They have no pony in the race. They're not involved in this fight. They're not the ones who are elbowing in in order to assert their own leadership. Why did they lose the most people? Because they were neighbors. Our rabbis learned from here, You see how important it is to surround ourselves with good people and to choose good neighbors and good influence because in a certain degree we are those we surround ourselves with. It has an enormous impact on us and on, our, on, us and on our lives. Okay, so let's get started. Parshas Korach. When does this begin? So those who aren't normally with us, our new listeners who've joined us, we actually go through the whole Parsha and we try to extract nuggets, insights, lessons from the early medieval commentaries from the Parshanim until lessons of today, but all geared towards informing, inspiring our lives and the contemporary issues that we're going through. The Parsha is always timeless and the Parsha falls out always never a coincidence, never by chance or randomness, but whatever we are reading that week has a message for us for that week, and we try to tap into and extract some of those lessons. So there's a fundamental debate that we're all familiar with, whether Ein Mukta Mamu'uchar Batorah or Yesh Mukta Mamu'uchar Batorah. Is the Torah written chronologically, or is the Torah written thematically? Is the Torah following the order, or is the Torah following certain themes? Rashi, the Ibn Ezra, always maintain or often maintain the position, Ein Torah. The Torah is written thematically, not chronologically. It doesn't follow the timeline accurately. Torah is not a historical book or document. It is a book of inspiration, of values, ideas, and ideals. And therefore, it follows themes. So if it makes more sense, so the themes will be more compelling, the message more persuasive if we communicate it out of order, it's not necessary to capture it in the order in which it occurred. The Ramban holds steadfast that Yesh The Ramban holds steadfast to the fact that the Torah is written chronologically. And unless rare exceptions where he can't defend that position, generally speaking, Yesh the Torah is written how? It's written chronologically. And this debate, which is consistently runs throughout Chumash, finds itself importantly here at the beginning of Parshas Korach as well. 
Let's look inside. The Ibn Ezra. If you have a Mikros Gedolos, you'll be able to follow. If not, I'll read slowly and translate. But as I said, part of what we do is delve into the text and delve into the analysis of our of our parshanim, and then part of it is later messages, which I'll tell you more on the outside. So the Ibn Ezra jumps in, When did this happen? When was Korach's rebellion? When did he assert himself? When did he compete? When did he instigate this fight, this contentiousness? Says the Ibn Ezra, when did this happen? Way back at the beginning of Sefer Bamidbar. When the firstborn of the Bechorim were switched out with the Levium. Originally, it was the firstborn who had the position of prominence, position of esteem. They were meant to be the leaders, but they participated in the Egel. They conceded, they forfeited that distinction. And therefore, it was given to the Levium instead. What happened? The suspicion of Moshe was nepotism. He was giving out these great positions to people he's related to. Sadly, we see that in our time. Certain rabbinates in certain parts of the world where in the area of Ashkacha, of conversion, relatives are getting positions of prominence, distinction, better salaries, better benefits. And that was the suspicion of Moshe. And so on and so forth. Gam Korach Bechorhaya. Korach was a firstborn. Kikin Kosov. And so on. And so on and so forth. So what happened? If you go back to the beginning of Sefer Bamidbar, if you go all the way back to Paragimel Pasuk Lamed in Bamidbar, what happens in Paragimel Pasuk Lamed? Parsha's Bamidbar itself. Go back to the very beginning of our book. Paragimel Pasuk Lamed. Unasi beisav the mishkachos hakahasi. Who was appointed the nasi, the nasi? Who was appointed the prince, the head of the family of kahas, the family that Korach belonged to? He was a bechor of. Who is the uh, kahasi? Elitzafan ben Uziel. So the Ibn Ezra's opinion is: When was the rebellion? When did Korach instigate this whole episode? Way back at the beginning of Sefer Bamidbar. When, when Elitzafan ben Uziel is given the position over him. I, why did it take till now? So, really, it happened then, but it's written now because thematically it's more compelling. It belongs here. The Ramban disagrees. The Ramban disagrees and says the Ramban, when did this rebellion happen? When did Korach instigate? When did he start this fight? Says the Ramban, he started it right here. It's a long Ramban. We'll skip halfway through. He quotes the Ibn Ezra, Amar Rabbi Avraham, and then he disagrees. That Korach was jealous of Elitzafan, he was jealous of Aaron, he wanted the Kohuna, Venimshu Gudasan Vavira Mimo, Velala Bechora, Kiakovavia Mushanat Lamiruvimenasla Yosef. He wasn't upset about the loss of the Bechora, the firstborn, but rather this whole episode happened where, says the Ramban, happened here. So says the Ramban the following. If really the appointment of Elitzafan happened so long ago, way back at the beginning of Bamidbar, why did Korach wait to rebel until now? Why didn't he rebel then? Why did he endure? Why did he absorb the, the uh, insult? Why did he go with the flow until now? What was he waiting for to instigate the rebellion until now? Says the Ramban, you know why? Because way back then, Moshe was impenetrable. Moshe was untouchable. Moshe was on top of the world. He was the redeemer who took the people out of Egypt. He was the one who can provide the salvation to their needs, to their complaints in the desert. But now, now there's a, a cinch in his armor. Now there's a dent in his armor. Now Moshe seems mortal. Moshe seems fallible. Moshe seems touchable. And Korach plays on that. Korach, Korach jumps on that. He waited for that. Because now this generation, they're not making it into Israel. True, Hashem forgives them for the chait hamaraglim. But nevertheless, they're all going to die in the desert. And nothing Moshe can do can reverse that or overturn that. And he sees Moshe's vulnerability, his fragility, and Korach plays on that. He jumps on that. And that's when he strikes, and that's why he chooses now, even though in fact 
the very reason, the motivation happened a while ago, he waited until now to jump on it. Rabbi Soloveitchik, in the wonderful OU, a little plug to the OU, the beautiful OU, Mesorah Sarav Chumash, which is fantastic, quotes the following, Rabbi Soloveitchik. First of all, the Rav points out very poignantly and very importantly that this rebellion, we introduced it by saying Sefer Bar Midbar is the story of the adolescence, the maturity, the development of the Jewish people coming into their own as a people, as a covenantal people, as a people who have a mission and a charge in this world. And we've seen, we've seen countless complaints. Moshe Rabbeinu begins to lose patience. But Rabbi Soloveitchik points out that this rebellion is a unique event. Prior to it, the people complained, protested, and murmured, but always in response to a physical need, a biological pressure, hunger, or thirst, a primitive fear of an enemy or a fiend like Amalek or a serpent or the wilderness itself. There were no political disagreements with Moshe, no ideological controversies, no rebellions. There were only protests, complaints, and quarrels, consequences of the discomfort and hardship to which the people were subjected during the first and second years they sojourned in the desert. They wanted food, they wanted water, they were afraid, they protested. Even the Chet Ego was not precipitated by idolatrous ideas that corroded the moral fiber. It was precipitated by the primitive instinctual honor that horror that falls a lost sheep in wide open spaces. Moshe was gone. He didn't come back based on their calculation. They panicked. And that's what led to the Chet Ego. It was biological. It was very base, animalistic, desire, appetite, fear, anxiety, but it wasn't ideological. This is the first now, it's ideological. All the previous quarrels were unorganized, unplanned, spontaneous reactions to situations. The quarrels were generated by a mob mentality, which could easily get excited, but also regains its equilibrium and composure. But now, Vayikach Korach, Korach took others with him. This is an ideological rebellion. This criticism, this break, this splintering, this divisiveness, it is categorically more dangerous than what came before. And that's why Moshe reacts in the way that he does. It's not simply enough to triumph, but he has to defeat, he has to purge, he has to eliminate. Because this is nefarious, it's insidious. Korach's rebellion in this context poses a formidable threat, not just a biological response, not just preying on anxiety, fear, or worry, but something so much more fundamental and therefore something so much more dangerous. And in this context, the Rav quotes, the Korach controversy was a rebellion, not a quarrel, due to ungratified physical desires. Moreover, the masses were not involved. The Am, the people who demanded water at Rafidim, the Am that told Aaron to build a god, did not participate in Korach's campaign. The leadership of the rebellion consisted of a few individuals, and the followers were several hundred at most. These people were of the elite, the aristocracy, representatives of the assembly, men of repute, it was a conspiracy premeditated and carefully thought out. The Ramban writes that Korach's enmity was incurred when Aaron was elevated to the position of high priest. But in spite of his anger, Korach did not attempt to come out publicly against Moshe. He understood very well that the people, notwithstanding minor incidents, were devoted and loyal to their great leader. He waited patiently, as we just saw in the Ramban, for the opportunity that would somehow undermine Moshe's position and popularity. And when did that opportune moment arrive? sooner than Korach anticipated. It was the incident of the spies, perhaps the most tragic incident in Moshe's life. Hashem's decree that all the adults would die in the desert was a hard blow to Moshe's prestige. For a short while, he lost his influence over the crowds. Before the children of Israel had left Egypt, while they were still busy building fortresses for Parah, Moshe had promised a short time after the departure they would enter the promised land, but now it took much longer than expected. And therefore, because Moshe couldn't deliver on that promise, and he couldn't deliver on that promise in the timely fashion that they anticipated and wanted, that was Korach's opening. This was his opportunity. So you could see this in a negative sense. You could see this in the very negative sense of the fact that Moshe was weakened. Moshe was fragile, and Korach jumped all over it. But the Kedushas Levi, we go from an Ibn Ezra, a Rashi, and a Ramban, and fast forward many centuries to the Kedushas Levi, Reb Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev learns from here a different lesson, and a very, very powerful lesson for all of us. And he says, he quotes, Why didn't Korach rebel? Why didn't he instigate? Immediately confront Moshe. As soon as he felt replaced and surpassed by Elitzafan, stand up, say something, organize a rally. You know why? Because Korach said to himself, I can tolerate Elitzafan's leadership because it will be short-lived. It's for a very short amount of time. Elitzafan, he's got a few years until we go into, the, I'm sorry, a few days, a few weeks, a few months, until we go into the land of Israel. But soon we'll enter the land. And when we enter that land, then, at that point, I will take over. 
At that point, I will be appointed. For a short time, I could tolerate. Anyone can endure, can be sovel, can be forbearing, foreboding for a short amount of time. He thought he was going to succeed him very quickly. But it's after the Chet Maraglam when he realizes this is going to be for a prolonged period, that's when Korach says, uh-uh, no more. I'm not waiting. That's when he stands up and steps up. That's when he confronts Moshe. And that's when he challenges the leadership in order to take him down. But the, the uh, Kedushas Levi of Levi Yitzchak has a second pshat. Very powerful, very beautiful, and a very powerful lesson for all of us. And he says, look at Korach. He bided his time. He was ready to jump. He was ready to instigate. He was ready to fight. But he was able to suppress that feeling. He was able to conquer it. He was able to control it. And what led to the discipline? He was motivated by his ego and by strategic thinking and waiting for the right time. But you know what? If we can suppress our behavior if we can suppress our acting out or our instigating or our sense of conflict for the wrong reason, says Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, then we can do it for the right reason as well. If we can do it for the wrong reason, if we can wait patiently, if we can endure, if we can absorb, if we can do it for the wrong reason, then we have the capacity to do it for the right reason and not to ever give in. So you're jealous, so you're envious, so you think that something's coming to you, so you think it's unfair someone else got it instead. So what? Korach was able to quiet that voice in his mind. He waited. At some point, he couldn't wait any longer, and he no longer quieted it. We have the capacity to quiet it for even longer. How does the Torah capture, how does it describe what led, what drove Korach, the mental health of Korach, the status of Korach? Korach was driven by Vayikach Korach. Vayikach Korach. And Rashi famously here quotes two opinions. What do you mean Vayikach Korach? Famously, the question of what bothered Rashi that led to this answer, the question, Rashi doesn't quote the questions, but from his commentary, we know that he's providing an answer to an implicit question. What was his question? What bothered Rashi is, it says, Korach took something. The Torah never tells us, the Pasuk never says, what did he take? What exactly did he take? Did he take his staff? Did he grab his cell phone and keys? Did he grab the microphone? Did he grab the social media? What did he take? Vayikach. He took something, and then it never tells us what he took. It tells us lineage. Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kaas ben Levi stops before Yaakov. Levi is the son of Yaakov, but it doesn't go back. Yaakov davent. Don't include me in divisiveness. Don't include me on your resume, on your bio. I don't want to be referenced as part of a fight. So Korach takes, what did he take? We get his lineage, and he also doesn't va'aviram. He partnered with them, b'nei Aliyah. And On ben Pelas b'nei Ruvain, the great On ben Pelas, whose wife spared him, the great wisdom, Chachmas Isha ban It was the wisdom of a wife that saved him. And uh, but Torah tells Vayikach and Vayakumu, and then they stood up. So Vayikach, what did he take? So here Rashi fills in. What did he take? Lakach es atzmo letzad acher. He took himself to the other side. They were all one side. We were unified. We were. Uh, had a sense of camaraderie, companionship, of peoplehood. We had a sense of patriotism, of unity. Vayikach Korach. Korach took himself and he positioned himself. He placed himself on the other side. La'orer ala kauna. V'zoshetirgim unklos. And this is what unklos says. V'is plague. V'is plague. A plugta is an argument, is a debate. But plug means half. He divided the people in half. Nechlak mishar ha'eda l'hachzig b'machlokas. He took himself out of the equation. He took himself out of the unity. He positioned himself as the other, as the adversary in a position of conflict. There should be no, there should be no partisanship. There should be no splintering or divide. There should be a sense of unity, not uniformity. We can have different opinions and different approaches and different perspectives and different beliefs. Judaism absolutely not only doesn't endorse, it rejects uniformity. We have 12 shvatim. Long before Korach, we already have, and we spoke about this in the beginning of Parsha's Bamidbar. You can listen back on RabbiFMGoldberg.org. We spoke about the different emblems or logos or insignias, the different ways we encamped under different flags, under different, uh, under different logos, was to express the uniqueness and the individuality of every tribe. We've believed in diversity since we became a nation, since our very inception. So we absolutely reject uniformity. So you could have different opinions and positions, you could be different logos, different units in the same army, but you have the unity of fighting for the same mission, fighting for the same cause. He took himself out of the army. He wasn't just in a different unit, he was fighting for the other side. A splintering and a divisiveness. You could have diversity without divisiveness. 
And you can have unity without uniformity. But Korach didn't understand that. Vaikach. Dovar Acharashi says a second shot. Vaikach Korach Mashach Rashi Sanhedrish Ben Bedvarim. Vaikach means how did he win people over? How did he draw them to his side? How did he recruit more people to his rebellion? Vaikach Korach. You know how he took them? Vaikach with Dvarim, with the power of persuasion. He was an orator. And with the power of speech, he was able to draw people to the wrong side. Kechu imachem devarim. With the power of speech, with his oratory skills, he was able to draw them to the other side, to the other side altogether. All this is a, uh, a big danger. Vayikach korach. To be able to fight. To be able to fight. Rabbi Salavechik says, you know what vayikach korach means? Vayikach means, and korach took, korach was on the take. He wasn't in a fight for noble reasons. This was not a machlokas l'shem shamayim. This wasn't in order a different perspective, a different approach to how best to advance the mission of Hashem in this world and our charge to be his ambassadors. This was not a machlokas l'shem shamayim. We'll come back to as the Mishnah famously characterized this as the paradigm or the example, the prototype of a machlokas shelo l'shem shamayim. So the ultimate example of a machlokas which is not for the sake of, of heaven. So why do we fight and what do we argue about? Says the Medrash, at the root of all machlokas, at the center of all unhealthy and damaging conflict and contentiousness, is a lack of emuna. Vayikach korach. The anatomy of machlokas is that he didn't believe. He was ego. He put his ego ahead of, ahead of Hashem. That was going on. And that's why vayikach, you know, the Mishnah says in Avos, there are three things that remove a person from this world. Kina, jealousy. Korach was jealous of Moshe. Taiva, an appetite, temptation, desire, drive, which drove Korach, and Kavod, the pursuit of honor. Where did the rabbis get that? These three things remove a person from the world. They got that, we said this at the beginning of Bereshus, they got that from the first three stories or episodes of the Torah itself, where the three stories are stories of Kinnah, Cain and Hevel, and Taiva, Dor Hamabul, Ador, Ador uh, Hamabul, and Kavod, the Dor Haflaga. And they saw Kinnah, Taiva, and Kavod, Hashem resets the world and starts again. But similarly here, Korach removed himself from the world, literally. Earth to Korach, come in Korach. The earth opened up and it swallowed Korach. He literally is motzias atzma min ha'olam. He removed himself from the world and we remove ourselves from our world, our equilibrium, our balanced lives, our relationships, our mental health. When we are when we are consumed by kinataiva v'kavod, when we're consumed by Korach was, by envy, by drive and desire, and by a, sense of, by a sense of jealousy. These are the three things that remove a person from the world, and these are the three things that removed Korach from his world. The Rebbe Yisrael, Rebbe Yisrael of Majitz, the Divrei Yisrael explains, Korach's mistake was that he thought that in life one takes. Vayikach Korach. His mistake is, what does life have for me? What can life give me? What are my rights and entitlements? What do I have coming? What do I deserve? I deserve the house and the car. I deserve the spouse and the children. I deserve the health. I deserve the livelihood and the income. I deserve the honor. Vaikach. He thought life is all about what I deserve, what's coming to me, my rights and entitlements. Says the Divri Yisrael, he failed to understand that our mission is where our mamlechas kawanim. He wanted the kahuna. The kahuna is not about what you get, even though we have the matnas kahuna in our parsha. The kahuna is about a life of service. It's a life of what you give. The Ramchal begins, Mesilas Hasharim, Machovas Ha'adam Ba'olamo. The most important thing, Yisoda Yisodas, the Shorash Avoda, the source of a happy, a meaningful, a productive life is to ask ourselves, not what can I take, but what can I give? Not what are my rights and entitlements, but what are my duties and obligations? Machovas Ha'adam Ba'olamo. Given who I am and what I have, Given my peckle in life, what is my mission? Not what can I take, but what can I give? That was Korach's fatal flaw, his mistake. Vayikach Korach. He thought life is about what can I take. The Gemara Chagiga Daftal tells us, Ezu Shota Hamaabid Lo. Who is a fool? Someone who loses what's given to him. But the Majrit Rebbe, the Beis Yisrael, says, No, Ezu Shota, who's a fool? Hamaabid Mashanosnim Lo. If you lose the awareness that everything we have is from Hashem, and we have it not to take, but we have it in order to be able to give. That is our mission. It's why we're here. It's what we're meant to be doing. Vayikach Korach. He was on the take and he took, and that was his mistake. The Ali Shor, Roshlom Avoba, has a fascinating insight here. And he sees in Korach something that, frankly, 
we are all vulnerable and susceptible to. Maybe some of us have already fallen prey, and if not, we need to be acutely aware and mindful in order to avoid the same ends that happens to Korach. Says Revolba the following. It says in Aleishor, page Kuf Samach. Aleishor Chelek Aleph. It's in uh, page Kuf Samach, 160. It says the following. What happens? See, we have to use our judgment each and every day. From the moment we wake up in the morning until we fall asleep at night, we are using our judgment. We have questions, we have dilemmas, we have conflicts. We're trying to navigate our way through this world. And we'd like to think that we are using an objective analysis. We'd like to think that we're using objective thought in order to come to the conclusions about what's right and what's right to do, and how is right to be. However, says Revolba, the great Mashkiach, it's so important to realize that in fact, we have many ulterior motives, that we are not objective, that we are not looking objectively, but in fact, the biases that we have within ourselves actually cloud our judgment, and they are a filter which can distort our thinking, and we need to be aware in order to be able to combat it. So we need to understand what are the ulterior motives and what is clouding our thinking. He says, let me, let me bring you three examples. How we can understand. We'll only look at his first example, but of course it's our story, the story of Korach the hidden motivations that underlie our actions. Don't just look at the external actions and defend them as if they have merit or value or virtue by definition, but understand that our behaviors are often driven by ulterior motives and motivations. And the first example he has is Korach. Number one, Korach, there are three, four things within Korach. Number one, We'll come back to in a moment. Oy! One of the things you'll learn when you learn with me, those who will continue to join us Tuesday mornings 9.30, is every week I will fetch and complain how much I had prepared and how little we got done and how fast the time flies. So we're about halfway done. There's a lot to talk about. So we'll get to what was Korach's argument. He instigates this rebellion, but he doesn't get up. He's too suave. He's too smooth. He's not going to say, it's all about me. I want the power. I want the honor. I want a revote. He's not going to say that. He's way too smooth. His handlers have him covered exactly what to say. Instead, he gets up and he says, it's all about you. Everybody's equally holy. And if everybody's equally holy, you shouldn't be denied. You shouldn't be deprived. Who is anyone to assert themselves over us? We're going to study and see in a moment what exactly was Korach's argument. What was he trying to advance? What was he trying to say? But what do you see? What did he do? So the Medrash famously tells us, so what did Korach argue? What was his argument that he advanced? He says to Moshe, let me ask you, if you have a talus and it has a string on each corner that's tcheles, are you yotzei tzitzis? Of course. So if there's a string on the corner where you're yotzei tcheles, if it's blue, what if the whole garment is blue? Does it even need tzitzis at all? And Moshe said, yes, it does. To which he said, that's absurd. If one blue string can exempt the garment, certainly the whole garment being, being blue should exempt it. Next, he asked him, if you have a room that's filled with Torah scrolls, does it need a mezuzah? Moshe said, of course, every room with a proper doorway needs a mezuzah. Korach says, that's absurd. It's ridiculous. What do you mean it needs a mezuzah? If you have only the mezuzah, the little parchment with a simple um, extraction of the text in order to exempt the whole room. So if you have a room filled with Torahs, of course it doesn't need a mezuzah. And what he concluded from these two arguments, falsely, but what he wanted to conclude was, and similarly, if you have a nation who is entirely holy, it doesn't need a mezuzah, it doesn't need the tzitzis, it doesn't need a manig, it doesn't need a leader. Moshe, you're fired, you're out of a job, we don't need you. So Zoe shita makifa al-mahusa mitzvos v'takfkido shel manig. So says Ravoba, what do you see from here? Korach had a philosophy. And his philosophy supported the conclusion that he wanted to begin with. This was not a cogent argument. This argument had a terrible flaw to it. It was inherently flawed. And yet, Korach stood by it. Why? Because sometimes there are lifestyles or there are agendas that we subscribe to. 
and then we craft and create a philosophy which will support the philosophy or the agenda. It's not that we've arrived at a philosophy because the philosophy is correct, and now the philosophy drives the agenda or the actions. Sometimes there are actions, a lifestyle, or agenda that attract us, so we craft a philosophy that will, that will support it. That was fatal flaw number one of Korach, where we think we have these external actions, and we think that we can objectively defend them, but the truth is they are biased. There are hidden motivations and biases underneath, and that's what leads to our philosophy. Number two says Revoba, Korach Rashi quotes, Korach was no fool. He wasn't a moron. Korach was a pikeach. He was a brilliant, charismatic man. So how did he get caught up in the shtus? Eino hitaso, his eye led him astray. He saw his eye led him astray. How did his eye lead him astray? Because he saw with a sense of vision who was meant to descend to, from him. His progeny included none other than Shmuel. Shmuel Anavi. Shmuel the Great, Chazal tell us, was as great as Moshe and Aram. So if Shmuel, who was as great as Moshe and Aram, was destined to descend from him, that's evidence that Korach himself should, should be the chosen one, not Moshe. So Nikudus HaKedusha Bahu Nechaz Bebitzu Machshavatso HaShashel HaSherah Beruach HaKodesh. So number two, you know what led him astray? Korach says, I have proof! I have proof I'm right! We, what we do is, we ignore the evidence we're wrong, and we disproportionately emphasize and collect the evidence that we're right. That was fatal flaw number two of Korach, something we ourselves are vulnerable to as well. We ignore and we dismiss and we neglect the evidence that doesn't support our conclusion, and we overemphasize and we only accept the evidence that supports it. Number three, Number three, it was all regular, it was all rooted in the negative attribute of jealousy. Niskanes, Shoresh Pasha, the source of the whole Parsha's kinna. Jealousy and envy, it drove Korach. And you see that when you have jealousy and envy, when you have this attribute and trait, it clouds your judgment. It makes you see things incorrectly. It distorts your sense of vision. And you think you're doing things that are good for you, you're actually sabotaging your own success. So Revolt Behir and Ali Shor, and then he quotes the same thing was true in the episode of the Miraglim. He goes through two, three episodes where the same phenomenon occurs. And what is the phenomenon? The phenomenon is that we think that we're thinking clearly and objectively. We think that we have cogent conclusions, behaviors, lifestyles, agendas, philosophies, but the truth is there are all kinds of ulterior motives and biases underlying them. And unless we have Torah as our guide and our compass, unless we have uh, people who are uh, around us, righteous people, to whom we turn to for advice uh, and who can guide us, then those underlying biases and motivations will cloud our judgment. Because maybe there's a philosophy, or maybe we even only uh, support ourselves with the proof and ignore the evidence against what we want. Or we're driven by this negative attribute of jealousy, of kinna, which leads us very far, very far astray. So it's important to be aware of the shochad. Just like a judge has to be very, very mindful and careful to never accept bribery because it will make them biased, so too there are lifestyles, there are behaviors, there are agendas which can make us biased to only see the things that will lead us to that conclusion and a person has to do all they can in life to try to remain as objective as they can and not to fall prey to that possibility. Rav Simcha Bunim has another perspective. Vayikach Korach. We've been talking all about Vayikach. The first Rashi quoted the two opinions of Vayikach. We saw the basis for all the Majitzer. Vayikach, he thought life was about taking, not about giving. So the Rav, Vayikach, he was on the take. He thought that this is all about myself, my name, my ego, how I can advance myself. The great Rav Simcha Bunim has another interpretation. Vayikach Korach says, Rav Simcha Bunim says that Tzadik, he had many Mailas. Korach had all the Mailas. If you were the Shadchan representing Korach, and you had his resume, psh, you'd be impressed. What did he have? He had Yichus, Ben Yitzar, Ben Kaas, Ben Levi, Ben Yaakov. Look at the Yichus. Korach was a Tamar Chacham. Torah was an Asher who was wealthy. Korach was a Pikeach. He was bright, perfect score in his SATs. Could have gone to Ivy League. He had all the Milas in the world. He had all the Milas in the world. And what happened? Vayikach Korach. Says Rav Simcha Bunim Vayikach means... He took it before its time. Korach, you'll have your day in the sun. 
you'll have your 15 minutes of fame, you'll have your opportunity to lead, to contribute, to make a difference. But you know what? You cannot expedite ahead of its time. You can't make it happen before it's meant to happen. You have to wait patiently. Sometimes we feel that we're overflowing with the desire and the skills and the talents to give. And we have to find the balance between asserting ourselves and making that difference, but also waiting for the opportunity when it's our moment and when it's our time. Korach tried to supplant others. He tried to steal from the time that was for others. He tried to grab the mic before it was his moment to shine, before it was his time. And says Rav Simcha Bonu Mepashishcha, says the great Sadik, Mida keneged Mida, the earth opened up, Vatiftach before it was his time. Just like he tried to advance his leadership prematurely, he died prematurely. And it was mida keneged mida. It was measure for measure, because exactly in the way that he made a mistake, exactly in what he did wrong, was exactly his demise of what brought him down, says Rav Simcha Bunim. But I want to share with you another perspective. And this comes from Rav Druk. I've been sharing over the last several weeks or months, beautiful set of svarim, Eish Tomid, Rav Yisrael Meir Druk, a great uh, Rosh Hashiva in Yerushalayim today, gave me his set of svarim, very beautiful, and he has very beautiful ideas. So to quote a few in them. He's bothered as many are. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, in the fifth chapter of Pirkei Avos, quotes, Any machlokas, that's l'shem shamayim, a machlokas which is really virtual, a machlokas which is uh, virtuous, which is righteous, will last. But if it's not virtuous, if it's a machlokas which is self-centered, which is egotistical, which is driven by all the wrong reasons, then it will not last. What's a machlokas l'shem shamayim? Says the Mishnah, everybody knows. That's the machlokas between whom? Hillel and Shammai. I understood. And what's the machlokas shalol l'shem shamayim? Korach. And what should be the end of the sentence? V'moshe v'aron. Just like you had two teams Today, Boca Raton Synagogue Youth Department has taken on Young Israel of Woodmere. Color War. North meets the South. Young Israel of Woodmere in Long Island. Boca Raton, Florida. Color War begins. We have this week. Our youth departments are going at it with Color War. So who would you say is competing with whom? Young Israel of Woodmere and Boca Raton Synagogue. Shamayim Va'aretz. The two teams. Color War. Blue and red. So you have two sides. Hillel and Shammai is a machlokas. That's L'shem Shamayim. So if you're trying to communicate, there's a machlokas, shalom shem shemaim. What's an example of a machlokas which is not virtuous or righteous? It should be Korach. And who was the other protagonist? Who was the other side of the machlokas with Korach? It was Moshe and Aaron. Why does the Mishnah say instead it was the machlokas? The example of a machlokas, shalom shem shemaim, is the machlokas between Korach v'chol adaso. Famous question, makes no sense. So Rav Druk quotes a few opinions and gives his own. Tosvis Yantif, Rav Yantif Lipman Heller. The great Tosfos Yontif says the following quote: "Zumachlokas korach v'chaladaso lo is kitzad sheini shal machlokas shehim Moshe v'Aaron k'moshe zochar v'chaluka rishona shebekan enam shavim shemoshe v'Aaron kavanos l'shemayim haisa v'lo haisa b'hem shum bechina shelo l'shem shemayim." So says Rav Yontif Lipman Hillel Tosfos Yontif Shamay and Hillel Shamay and Hillel were equal in their machlokas. They're both l'shem shemayim. Both of them had a noble reason. So therefore we project them, we include them as two sides of the machlokas, Shammai and Hillel. But here Korach was driven by ego, by arrogance, by envy. You cannot possibly position him as being opposite Moshe and Aaron, because Moshe and Aaron were L'shem Shemaim. So when you're giving an example of the machlokas L'shem Shemaim, how dare you, God forbid, include the names of Moshe and Aaron? They should never be listed in the context of machlokas L'shem Shemaim, and therefore the only participants in the machlokas that was Shalom L'shem Shemaim were Korach v'Adaso. I, Moshe and Aaron, they weren't in the machlokas? They were, according to this answer. But their attitude in that machlokas was l'shem shemayim, therefore they cannot be included in the Mishnah in that way. The Malbim, Mayor Leibish, has a different interpretation. And he says the following, and so on, and he asks our question, I love this chat. You listen carefully. You know what the Malbim says? When you have a machlokas l'shem shamayim, each side of that machlokas l'shem shamayim, each side of that machlokas is unified. Why? Because they're driven l'shem shamayim. So nobody says, 
It's not fair. You got to speak at the last rally. You got to publish the last op-ed. You're listed as the president and the vice president. I'm all the way down on the letterhead. Because the two sides are L'shem Shemayim. So when what drives you and motivates you is L'shem Shemayim, each side is unified. Young Israel of Woodmere, not that I'm telling you uh, this color war, I hope it's L'shem Shemayim. We'll find out later this week. But Young Israel of Woodmere, they're unified as a team. Bogartown Synagogue Youth Department, unified as a team. But when it's a machlok shalom shem shamayim, when what drives you is not to advance Hashem's will and to repair His world, but what drives you is your own ego, what drives you is your own arrogance, what drives you is your own envy, as was the case by Korach and Adaso. So you know who the machlokas was between? Not Korach, Adaso, and Moshe and Aaron. The machlokas was between Korach the Adaso. Even within his side, Korach had contentiousness and debate and conflict. Even within his side, Korach had infighting within his own team. When the Machlok is L'shem Shamayim, the team operates as a team. But when the whole institution, when the whole effort and agenda of the Machlok is not L'shem Shamayim, then there's infighting and discord even within the team itself. Korach Korach wanted to be the Kohen Gadol. Right? But Dasan Vaviram Om Ben Pelas had different reasons for joining the fight. And Ruvain got recruited for a different reason to the fight. Everyone on Korach's side were fighting for different reasons. So therefore, that's how the Malbim explains the Mishnah. What's an example of Machlokas L'Shem Shamayim? Hillel, his whole team were unified. Shammai, his whole team are unified. So it was Hillel versus Shammai. And what's an example of Machlokas Shilol L'Shem Shamayim? Korach va'adaso. Not Korach and his Ada against Moshe. But the Machlokas Shalol Shem Shamayim is Korach va'adaso, the fight between Korach and his followers, who are each elbowing and positioning for the leadership, for the title, for the money, for the power. When you're driven by insincere motive, then you have infighting and discord even within your side, even within your team. And then Rav Druk gives his own interpretation. And he says the following. He says the following. He says, Immediately when Moshe heard Korach's argument, Moshe fell on his face. And the Ramban says, Why did he fall on his face? Aaron said, You know, maybe Korach's right. Only Hashem can say who's really deserving, who's really superior who's really more excellent than the other. Maybe Korach's right. Korach has yichas and wealth. He's brilliant. He's genius. He's charismatic. Korach's got it all. Maybe he's right. So Moshe and Aaron, with their humility, entertained the possibility that maybe Korach's right and said it's in Hashem's hand to determine who's right. So the machlokas was Korach va'adaso. You can't say it was Korach and his Ada against Moshe and Aaron because Moshe and Aaron entertained the possibility Korach's right. They just said, let Hashem decide. So therefore the Machlokas was Korach va'adaso, but not with Moshe and Aaron because Moshe and Aaron even entertained the possibility that Korach was right. Three interpretations, three Tosas Yantif, the Malbim and Rav Druk himself about why the Mishnah talks about Hillel versus Shammai and doesn't, it's not uh, parallel. It's not consistent. Then it should say Korach ve'edas ve'adaso against Moshe and Aaron. It doesn't. It says Korach ve'adaso. We saw three answers. Tosus Yantav, the Malbim, and Rav Druk himself. All this was in Vayikach Korach. So what's Korach's argument? Go back to the Chumash. Korach says, Because everybody's holy. And in them is Hashem. We're not going to go into what we discussed in previous years. Feel free, you can listen to all our previous shirim around RabbiFMGoldberg.org on the parsha. We discussed Rabbi Soloveitchik's interpretation of Kulam Kedoshim, democratized religion. Everyone is equal. This was Korach's attempt to dissolve centralized authority. There are no poskim, and there are no experts, and there is no Bezdin, and there is no Sanhedrin, and there is no Kashrus, and there is no organized Geirus. Centralized authority should be dissolved and disbanded. Everyone's equally holy. Everyone has the equal opportunity. Korach says everybody is equal, the great equalizer. And he tried to get rid of Judaism. What was his mistake? He thought that Judaism is the, what, what the Rav coined the common sense rebellion. The whole argument about if there's the whole room is filled with Torahs, what do you need a mezuzah? If the whole garment is blue, what do you need tzitzis? That was an argument of common sense. But you can't apply common sense to a discipline. You don't apply common sense. Well, if I let go of my glasses, they should remain here. Gravity doesn't make sense. Common sense tells me that they shouldn't fall. 
learn, become a physicist, learn some physics and you can have an opinion about it. You can't apply common sense to these great areas, most among them, the Torah HaKadosh itself. If you want to see more about how Rabbi Soloveitchik coined the common sense rebellion, where did Korach go wrong? And in what ways do we similarly go wrong? It's worth looking at. But I want to share with you the great Imre Chaim. The Imre Chaim, the Vishnu Tzarebbe, the Vishnu Tzarebbe, the Imre Chaim says the following. What does it mean, Kulam Kedoshim? Korach Ta'an Shekulam Kedoshim. Korach said, everybody's equally holy. So they said to Korach, your argument why Moshe and Aaron should not have positions of distinction, of prominence, of leadership. What does the community need a rabbi for? What do we need a chazan? What do we need a rav? What do we need a posek? Everybody's equally holy. Let everyone draw their own conclusions. So says the Mechayim. So if you ask Korach if everybody's equally holy, why aren't they behaving equally holy? If everybody's equally holy, shouldn't they be living equally holy lives? So Heshev, you know what his answer is? Uvisocham Hashem. In hearts. Just like the people, if you say to them, you know, Hashem has expectations. Shabbos, kashras, honesty in business, not gossiping. There's a certain life and lifestyle that's demanded of us that we're supposed to live up to. Why aren't you behaving? Why aren't you living that way? You know what they answer? I'm a good person in my heart. I have a Jewish heart. That's what Korach was answering to. Kulam Kedoshin. We all equally have the potential for holiness. Aye, but where's the holiness? Ubisocham Hashem. I have a Jewish heart, a Yiddish heart. Maybe, not, maybe it's not manifesting itself right now. Maybe I'm not living that life on the outside right now. But Ubisocham Hashem. I have a Jewish heart inside. And therefore, because every Jew has a Jewish heart, and every Jew has equally Jewish potential, therefore says Korach, no centralized authority, no Moshe and Aaron, nobody should position themselves as better, as greater, as more superior, as more authoritative over the other. Everybody is and should be considered equally holy. That was his rebellion, argues argues the division uh, of Tzarebbe. But I want to tell you, in uh, two days is Gimel Tamas. Today is the first of Tamas. I get Chaydish to everybody. In two days is Gimel Tamas. And Gimel Tamas is the yurt side of the Rebbe Zatzar, of Menachem Mendel Schneerson, whether you are technically a Lubavitcher or not, I've always said we're all Lubavitchers. Remember the days when you traveled? You traveled for business, you traveled for pleasure, you needed a minion, you wanted kosher food, you needed a mikvah. You could thank the Rebbe who dispersed an army across the entire world. He was a transformational leader, arguably unparalleled in having built an armory, army and his Avas Yisrael, his love of the Jewish people, and is absolutely sending them around the world. And this week is his Yeretzite. So whether, again, you count yourself among the Lubavitchers, a Chabadnik, or whether you agree or believe everything or accept it, but the Zahakar Satov we should have. Why am I mentioning the Rebbe? Because I want to mention him in this context of Korach's argument, Kulam Kedoshim, because the Rebbe has a beautiful insight. We typically think of Korach as this scoundrel, as this villain, but the truth is he was a holy rebel. He was a holy rebel. If you think about it for a moment, what was wrong with his argument? Isn't that true? Don't we really believe that we're different but equal? Kohanim, Levim, Yisraelim, men, women, Yes, there are different mitzvahs that speak to different people in the different roles. They're different roles, but isn't that argument the one that we always make? Different but equal? It's other the religions that talk about a human being as being a son of Chas v'shalom, the son of God. But for us, kol kulam kedoshim. There's a kedushas Yisrael, and all Jews have inherent holiness, and we're all inherently equal. We are charged with being better, with being greater. I'm going to write an article this week that privilege is not a dirty word. We believe in privilege. We embrace privilege. Not a privilege that we're entitled to, but the privilege of the responsibility that we have to be better. Ratzah Kodesh Baruch Lezakos es Yisrael. God wanted to give the Jewish people privilege. How did he give us privilege? We're going to talk about that. So we're all equal. It's a pretty compelling argument Korach was advancing. Where was he wrong and why was he wrong and why do we portray him as this villain, as this scoundrel, as this lowlife? The Ishbet Rebbe says, in fact, that Korach was not using empty rhetoric or disingenuous argument. Korach was a holy rebel, says the Helige Ishbitzer, the Meshiloach. Korach was driven by this love of all Jews and the recognition that inherent and implicit with every Jew is a, is a pintaliyid, that wherever you go on the face of the earth, whatever the Jew's background, they're a holy Jew. You know, the Babacher Rebbe hated, 
He would never use the word hate. But the Babacher Rebbe rejected. If you talk about someone and say, oh, they have limited background. Oh, oh, that person, they have no background. They didn't get a Jewish education or their family wasn't observant. They don't have a background. The Babacher Rebbe would say, really? They don't come from Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov? Really? They don't come from Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah? Every Jew has background. So that background that every Jew has, kol kulam kedoshim, Hashem. So where was Korach wrong? Why was Korach wrong? So we know that the Rebbe built this argument. At the core of his philosophy was exactly this view. The attitude of kol kulam kedoshim, every Jew is a precious soul, a holy spark. Every Jew has infinite potential and deserves our love and our loyalty and our support and our presence wherever they may be. He believed in people and he empowered people. That was the Rebbe's argument. And without getting into the whole history right now of his impact on the world and how close it came to almost not happening, although I think that's critical to understanding the insight of the difference between Korach's, the Holy Rebbe's terrible mistake, and the Rebbe, the Holy Rebbe's correct vision of crafting and shaping the world. You know, the Rebbe had worked as an engineer. He was introverted, and he was extremely private and even shy. And when his father-in-law, the Friedrich Rebbe died in 1950 and the vacuum was created in the leadership. They tried to recruit the Rebbe, but he rejected it. He objected vehemently, vehemently. Rabbi Yitzchak Dubov of Manchester happened to be in New York at the time and he stubbornly insisted that the Rebbe has to accept. And the Rebbe, like Moshe Rabbeinu before him, turned to him and said, quote, what do you suppose, that Mendel Schneerson is a Rebbe? He felt disqualified, inadequate, and it took an entire year. Lubavitchers all know this, this is nothing new for you, but many don't. Do you know it took an entire year for the Rebbe to accept the appointment to succeed his father-in-law? It was only the first year outside of the Friedrich of the previous Rebbe that he accepted upon himself to bow to the pressure and to accept, and the Jewish world is so much better off for it today. Thank God, because he agreed. So why is Korach a villain, not a hero? And why is the Rebbe a hero? Why is his argument noble, if after all it was the same philosophy that drove the Rebbe? And the answer is in the opening Pasuk, Vayikach Korach that Torah took himself to the other side. Korach took himself to the other side. You know, conflict begins when Lakach, when someone, as we said, is on the take, when it's all about them, their ego, their prominence, their power, their leadership. Korach's argument may have seemed noble on the surface, but he was driven by self-interest and by greed and by thirst for power. So part of his argument, the idea that the notion that everybody is inherently and intrinsically holy, it's correct, it's beautiful, it's righteous, it's right. That part's right. But what he got wrong was he wanted to make that argument because he felt in the end that would lead him to more power. It would consolidate his power, his influence. will let him. The Rebbe, in great contrast, the Rebbe said, I don't want to be Rebbe. I don't want power. I don't want distinction. I want to lead a private life. I'm an engineer. I'm an Ever Hashem. I'm a Chassid. That's all I want. It took a year of recruiting and pushing him. Korach wasn't recruited or pushed. Korach was pushing and recruiting people to rebel with him. So the philosophy, the attitude, of Koli Lakulam Kedoshim, which drove the Rebbe so beautifully to see the holiness intrinsic in every Jew and to send out his army of soldiers to be able to make that difference for them wherever they are, that part is so correct and it's so beautiful. But what motivates us, what drives us, that's what a person has to have in check, that's what a person has to be so very careful about. Lastly, we saw that Rashi said, Ayin Hitaso, his eye led him astray. What does it mean his eye led him astray? And what one eye? A nayim. It should be his eyes, in the plural, led him astray. Why do we describe with one eye led him astray as opposed to his eyes led him astray? So the answer is, the answer is the following. The Zohar, the Holy Zohar, says that we look at a Kodesh Baruch Hu, God has two eyes. With one eye, God says, Mika Amcha Yisrael. He looks at us as angelic. Ma'at, we're only we're just below God. We're angelic. We have capacity and potential. We are, on the one hand, Mika Amcha Yisrael. On the other hand, with his other eye, the Zohar says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Al Ozvam Es Torasi. We abandoned Hashem's Torah. We are so pathetic. We're worm food. We're so deplorable. We're just above an animal. That's how lowly we are. Hashem has two perspectives to look at us, and it's the two eyes with which we look at our own lives. On the one hand, we have the godless Adam, the greatness of man. And on the other hand, we have the shiftless Adam, the lowliness of man. And we all know famously, attributed to many people, a Jew is supposed to carry in each pocket a little petek, a little, uh, a little kvittel. It should say on the one, that, the whole world was created for me, godless Adam, my 
incredible capacity and potential. On the other hand, in our pocket, the other pocket, we, we say, I'm pathetic, I'm unworthy, I'm inadequate, I'm nothing. And we need to know when we're feeling like we're nothing, pull out the petek that says, You're great. And when you feel that you're so great and you're all that, you pull out the little note that says your future is worm food, you're dust of the earth, you're nothing. And finding that balance between the two is what should drive us to a virtuous and a meaningful life. But there were characters who are described as blind in one eye. Korach saw with one eye. Bilam was blind in one eye. Who are the people who are blind in one eye? Because all they see is godless Adam. All they see is the greatness. It's not balanced by a healthy dose of humility and of modesty. And it's only the balance between the two that can truly, that can truly drive us. Perak Zion Pasuk Zion. Perak Zion Pasuk Zion. See if we can get past in the last few minutes the opening of the parsha. It says, Rashi here quotes, Rav Lachem B'nei Levi. It's too much for you, offspring of Levi. Rav Lachem B'nei Levi. And Rashi here quotes, Rav Lachem B'nei Levi. Says Rashi, Korach shepikeach haya, ma ra'a l'shtuz zeh. Korach was a pikeach. So what was he involved in this shtuz, in this narishkeit, in this nothingness? Why was he so distracted by this? Korach pikeach haya. Why was he engaged in this shtuz? In fact, I forgot who says it. I saw the word pikeach, the gematria. I don't quote gematrias a lot, so... Listen carefully. The gematria of the word pikeach is twice the gematria of the word tzad. Tzadi dalad, 94, is one side. The pikeach is twice tzad, you see both sides of something. When you only see the merit to one side, when you can't even see the other side, when you're unwilling to even entertain the other possibility, then you're a fool. A pikeach is able to see both sides. But Rabbi Yisrael of Ger, the base Yisrael, says, what does it mean? Korach pikeach haya. Korach was brilliant. What do you see the shtus? He says, no. You know what the shtus was? That Korach thought of himself as a pikeach. Some people are too smart for their own good. You think you're so smart. You think you're so superior. You think you see things so much better. You think you're so much better. Korach pikeach What a shtus to think you're such a pikeach. should have the humility to know, you know, that's part of this coronavirus, this COVID, I think has taken away our pikchus. There's no expert. There's literally no such thing as an expert when it comes to coronavirus or COVID. What we knew yesterday is not true today. What we know today probably won't be true tomorrow. Nobody's an expert. It has absolutely uh, humbled, or should be humbling all of us. We have people who know more, who are more experts, but absolutely nobody is an expert in this. We've all been humbled by the inability to truly understand or predict uh, what's going to happen. So, pikeachaya, shtuzzeh. Thinking you're a pikeach, thinking you have all the answers, thinking that you know everything is a shtus. It's a total shtus to think in that way. Moshe Rabbeinu is so bothered by Korach, and when he approaches Hashem, he says to Hashem, we're now Perak Tezayin, Pasuk Tezvah. When he comes to Hashem, he says, what is going on over here? Vayichar Moshe Ma'od, he's angry. Vayomar Hashem, al-tefen al don't accept their... Their sacrifice. I didn't take one of their donkeys. I didn't even take a single donkey. I haven't wronged even one of them. Moshe, what does this have to do with anything? Korach is challenging why she should have the position of leadership, why she should have the distinction, why she should have the power. He's not accusing you of, of stealing. He's not accusing you of siphoning off your own, of inside information. So what is this the response? What is this the defense? Why is he saying that? Listen to what the vision of the Rebbe that Merchaim says. Doesn't mean I haven't taken one donkey. It says, I have transformed their Chomer, not just one, all the Chomer. You know, the Maharal talks about his language, his vocabulary is Chomer and Tzura. Chomer means material substance. Tzura means the form that we give it. Moshe Rabbeinu rode the Chamor, the donkey, that Avraham rode to the Akedah, that was created in the six days of creation. The Maharal says that same donkey, what an Altakakar donkey, this old donkey from the six days of creation that Avraham rode, that Moshe rode, that Mashiach's going to ride. How old is this donkey already? The donkey's got a walker or a wheelchair. Who can ride on its back? How old is this donkey? So the Maharal says, no, it's not an actual donkey. What it means, chamor is chomer, this material world that we're meant to be the manigav. We should fashion and mold and give it a tzura. We take the physical world and we transform and we elevate it. Says the vision to the Mechaim, lo chamor echad mehem nasasi. You think I, not I didn't take one donkey, but I didn't just shape and mold one piece of chomer. Nasasi velaisi, harbei me'achomrios. 
And therefore, what he says, I wasn't just a reya, a friend to one of them, I was a friend to all of them. He turns the Pasuk entirely upside down, he inverts it. Moshe's argument from what the simple Pashup shot sounds like. And he says, it's not that I didn't take one donkey. You think one donkey? No, I transformed all their Chomer. I didn't just harm one of them. No, I was a friend to all of them. He turns the entire thing on its head and he reinterprets it so beautifully. Rav Druk also has a beautiful interpretation. We're running out of time, so I'll just tell it to you outside. Rav Druk says, what is Moshe Rabbeinu bringing up here, Locha Morachad? You know what the answer is? Because he's, he's exposing Korach. Korach's whole thing was his ego, right? We contrasted Korach with the Rebbe. The same conclusion, the Pintel Yid, but are you driven to that conclusion by ego or by humility? Korach was driven by self-interest, by ego. So that's what Moshe says. Korach, Vayikach, he's on the take. Why is it, what does that have to do with anything now? Says Rav Druk, it's a contrast to Korach. Vayikach, Korach, Korach was in it and all about Vayikach, he was on the take. Moshe Rabbeinu says, I'm the farthest thing from being on the take. I had the opportunity to take all along. I never cooked the books. I never touched a dollar. I never made a Xerox copy, made a long distance call, never took a pen and pencil home for my kids when school started. I never was on the take whatsoever. Vayikach Korach. Korach was on the take. In contrast, Lochamor Echad, I didn't take even so much as a lowly donkey. Haish Echad, maybe we'll, ah, so much more. So much more. But we'll end with this. So much more. We should have a post-game show of the Parsha for those who want to stay after. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll start that bonus material. But for today, we'll end here with the following. A beautiful Imre Chaim. I love this Imre Chaim. Moshe says, Perek Tezayin Pasla Chav Beis. Tezayin Chav Beis. Moshe Rabbeinu says, they fell on their faces and they say, Hashem, the God of the spirits of all flesh, should one man sin and you be angry with the entire assembly? Moshe and Aaron fell on their face and they say, one person made a mistake. You're going to carry out this Magefa. By the way, Parshas Korach is a precedent. Coronavirus is not the first plague to befall the Jewish people of the world. Korach has, Parshas Korach has the story of a Magefa, of a plague. So Moshe and Aaron fall on their face and they say, God, one person made a mistake and you're going to take it out on the whole world? Listen, listen to how the Imre Chaim... Who's the one person who made the mistake? Who's the one person who made the mistake? Ha'ish Echad. Says Rashi, Hu Achotei. V'yata and you, Alkoi, Datik Tzof. Who's the one person who made the mistake? The fatal error? So the simple understanding is, of course, who is that? Korach. Korach made a mistake. So Moshe is saying to, to the Rebona Shalom, one person made a mistake, a whole plague, innocent people suffering. No, the Imre Chaim says, read it differently. Moshe Rabbeinu says, one person made a mistake, I'm the leader, I failed. Clearly I didn't educate them, clearly I didn't inspire them, clearly I didn't lead them, clearly I didn't prepare them properly. If this rebellion could happen, a lie, it's on me, it's on me. So says the vision to the Imre Chaim, the one person who made the mistake is not Korach. Moshe is doing what we call taking extreme ownership. We don't have time now, we gave a Shabbos at Godlod Russia a couple years ago, a book by the great Navy SEAL, by the great leader of the Navy SEALs, a commander, Jocko Willink, wrote a book, a book I highly recommend called Extreme Ownership. And in the book Extreme Ownership, we gave, I think it was a Shabbos Shuvah Drasha, called Extreme Ownership. This is all Torah. All of Torah is about taking achrayis. Adam and Chava are expelled from the Gan. If they would have taken achrayis, if they would have taken responsibility, Hashem would have let them stay. If Cain would have answered the question, where's your brother? Hashem would have forgiven him. Throughout our history in Tanakh, Hashem is willing to forgive us when? When we step up and take responsibility. What He can't tolerate is when we pass the buck, when we don't take responsibility. And that book, Extreme Ownership, how do you take extreme ownership? This is the vort. I wish I had seen this Imre Chaim when I gave it Shabbat Shuvah Drasha. Extreme ownership, taking achrayis. This is an example of par excellence. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Ha'ishachad yechta v'akola eda tiktsof. If you read that book, or if you just Google and listen to his podcast, Jocko Willing tells the story. Uh, what, what precipitated the whole book was an experience he had 
fighting in Iraq where he was leading his men and something went wrong and there was terrible friendly fire and people died and his, his unit was suspended and his higher-ups came to meet with them and he, of course, none of it was his fault. It was his men that had failed. But when they got to that meeting, he stood up and he said, it's all me, no one else's fault. Because he came to realize that if anyone else failed, it's because he didn't prepare them. It's because he didn't teach them, educate them, inspire them. And therefore, a real leader takes extreme ownership. A real leader doesn't pass the buck, and that's the story. It's not the one person who made a mistake and you're going to get angry at everyone is Korach. The one person who made the mistake and you're going to get everyone angry at everyone is Moshe Rabbeinu. This is a perfect example and model of his taking extreme ownership. We have a lot more that we left out. Amir Tzashem for next year. Parshas Korach. What were we going to talk about? Veshamartem es Mishmeres. The Matnas Kahuna, a beautiful Tolna Rebbe. A beautiful Tolna Rebbe about Ein Simcha Kataras Asafik. The biggest relief in the world is when we can resolve doubt. And that was the relief of Aaron and the Matnas Kahuna. We'll save this for next year. And uh, a beautiful, uh, such beautiful Pshatim. Okay, we'll wait for next year. Again, I want to thank all those who've joined, particularly those who came through the OU. If you're on YouTube, do me a favor. And take one extra moment and press subscribe to our channel. You'll learn more about the classes that we offer and it will help us uh, be able to spread the message even further. So if you're watching on YouTube, please take an extra moment and subscribe. We continue tomorrow morning with the 10 minutes of Mini Masilis Sharm at 8.15. We have Living with the Moon at 8.45. Tomorrow night, Behind the Bima with Dr. Jerome Gropman, uh, Groupman, the uh, New York Times best-selling doctor, author, expert. Really excited to talk to him tomorrow evening, 9 p.m., Dr. Jerome Gruppen, thank you for our sponsors and wishing everyone a incredible day and a chodesh tov.